nearly 10 years since my burnout experience and I believe that it wasn't necessary for me to burn out and it's not necessary for you either. In this podcast, my guests and I share our real life experiences with burnout. We get into the science of stress and share actionable tips on how to prevent burnout and how to recover from it. I'm Hannah Holden, ex-management consultant and burnout survivor. I work with management consultants to help them avoid and overcome burnout. I help them to get intentional about their choices, rebuild their energy and embed new healthy habits so that they can get back to loving life. Hello and welcome back. I have been encouraging feedback from listeners on what you want more of and what you want less of and one of my friends said she wants more science. So I kind of touched on some science in a couple of the episodes already and uh, yeah so she wanted more of that. You have no idea how happy that made me because it's given me this big green light to talk about stuff that I love um, and I wasn't really sure whether or not everybody else wanted to hear about it. So yeah, big green light for me. Um, And before I even started this podcast series, I knew that I wanted to talk about the body-mind connection because the body-mind connection is central to how I approach well-being from a stress management perspective and when we look at burnout prevention and burnout recovery. Now, burnout is mental, physical and emotional exhaustion, so we need to consider how we're doing mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually in order to get back on track. But more interestingly, I think we need to look at how what appear to be separate aspects of our well-being, how they are interrelated. And that's where we come to this body-mind connection. So it's really pivotal to how I view well-being. Now, I haven't covered this topic before because it's enormous and I'm extremely passionate about it. And it's really challenging for me to decide where to start this discussion. Um, And more importantly, perhaps, what not to say, what not to cover when I'm first introducing you to this topic, because I want this to be valuable and relatable and actionable and not just a passionate rant from me for hours about this topic that I love. So here goes, I'm going to try and contain myself and offer up something that is, you know, all of those things relatable and actionable and everything. Um, Now here's what I want you to take away. First of all, the mind influences the body. And secondly, the body influences the mind and if that's all you take away then I think it's all good (laughs) but we are obviously going to go into a whole lot more detail than just that so what I've decided to do is break this down into two episodes and the first one will focus on the mind influencing the body and the second one will focus on the body influencing the mind so today we're going to start with the mind influencing the body First of all, I'm going to give you some examples, some evidence of the mind changing the biology of the body. And then I'm going to break it down to a subcellular level so you understand how this is happening, so that you get insights into the science and the mechanisms underneath all of this. And then I'm going to bring it back up again and we're going to talk, I'm going to give you some light at the end of this sciencey tunnel and I'm going to give you a few ideas of what you can do with this knowledge. And so that's it. Examples and evidence, the science, and what you can do with it. That's what we're going to cover. And so starting with examples and evidence of the mind changing the biology of the body, I am going to introduce Exhibit A, the placebo effect. So something we've all heard of before, right? So on Wikipedia, the placebo effect is described as a beneficial effect 
produced by a placebo drug or treatment which cannot be attributed to the properties of the placebo itself and must therefore be due to the patient's belief in that treatment. So placebos are used in drug trials as the control. They don't compare a group of people receiving a real potential drug to nothing. Instead, they use two groups who are each receiving some form of treatment. One receives a chemically active drug and the other receives something that's inert. And so what they're trying to do here is establish whether or not the drug is making the difference or if the patient feels better because somebody is giving them some care and attention and a sugar pill and that they believe that it will help. And even in some cases, um, they've seen people benefit from receiving the placebo when they know that they're getting a placebo. So it's just for some people, the, the, you know, the ritual, the care and the attention that goes with it. Anyway, they use the placebo as a control because so many people experience benefits when receiving a placebo. And so here are some weird and wonderful examples of the placebo effect in action. And I'll provide some links in the show notes if you want to check out the studies. So first of all, sham surgery. This is where they put somebody through a surgical procedure, but they don't actually complete the full surgery. So the individual will get the anesthetic. They believe they've had the treatment. They have the scar. They get the recovery support. But the actual you know, mechanical element of the surgery of what they actually say they have done um, isn't actually completed. And this sham surgery has been found to be effective in a wide range of conditions. Um, and the two that I'm going to mention here are knee osteoarthritis and also degenerative meniscus tears. Another study reported that a placebo given four times a day resulted in greater improvement for patients than those receiving a placebo two times a day. And this was for patients presenting with peptic ulcers or duodenal ulcers. And they saw a greater healing um, improvement in those ulcers if people were administered a placebo four times a day versus two times a day. But this was just the placebo, just more of it, right? Um, and this is really interesting. Okay, here's another study. How the placebo is presented affects the results. So they took a group of women experiencing headaches and some they, they were receiving either aspirin or placebo sugar pills. And these women reported enhanced effects when these drugs were presented in fancy brand name packaging versus the kind of hospital issue bland kind of neutral boxes. So these women were experiencing um, a greater improvement in their pain experiences when they had the flashy brand names over the neutral stuff. So, so it's not just about the placebo, it's like how it's presented to somebody. Like I said, I'll include those links. Um, in my corporate talks on stress management, I share insights into mindset studies and this, there's this great study about milkshakes. There's a hormone called ghrelin, which is an appetite suppressant. And it's produced when we consume high calorie foods. So what we're expecting to see is when these participants consume high calorie milkshakes, they should, we're expecting to see an increase in their ghrelin levels, um, ghrelin being an appetite suppressant. So they've consumed high calorie, they have this, they produce this hormone and then their appetite is suppressed for longer. And then what we're expecting to see is when they drink a milkshake with high calorie levels, sorry, with low calorie levels, then we're expecting low levels of ghrelin. 
And sure enough, what they found is when they brought in the participants and they consumed a milkshake labelled as high calorie, their ghrelin levels spiked. And when they came in and they were given one that was labelled as low calorie, their ghrelin levels remained low. However, there was only one type of milkshake used in this study. They all had the same amount of calories in them. The only difference between having high levels or low levels of ghrelin was the individual's belief of what they were drinking. So when they thought they were drinking something with high calorie, their ghrelin hormone levels spiked. But when they thought it was low calorie, it didn't. So there was no change in the like, chemical composition of that milkshake. The only change was in what they thought they were consuming. I think that's just it's such a, an eloquent study to show at a biochemical level how our mindset affects our body. It's just, I think that's just such a simple, um, brilliant study. Um, because when people say, you know, oh, I feel less pain, it's really not as tangible as measuring the levels of this hormone in their saliva. It's, yeah, great study. But how on earth can that be? So how on earth is it that a thought in our minds is affecting our biochemistry? What's that pathway like? How does it happen? How can it be that the mind influences the body in such a direct and tangible way? The answer that I'm going to give to you today is peptides. Peptides are like tiny proteins. They're made of the same building blocks as proteins, which are called amino acids, but they're really tiny. Like some of them consist of only a few amino acids, some of them maybe nine amino acids. They're really tiny, um, up to 20 amino acids in these tiny little peptides, um, as opposed to proteins, which can be hundreds and hundreds of amino acids long, and they often, um, so a complex protein like an enzyme might consist of actually multiple molecules of protein all kind of bolted together. Um, so yeah, you get these really complex proteins, enormous ones, like the one that I was um, studying 20 odd years ago in a lab at university. Um, but these peptides are like mini versions of those. They're made of the same building blocks as proteins, but they're tiny. And so yes, to really understand what's going on here, we are going to get into the minutiae of how the body is working at a biomolecular level. We need to understand what's happening inside our bodies when we think things and experience emotions related to those thoughts. But before I take you into the world of peptides, I want to give you a simple map of the territory so that you kind of don't lose your bearings whilst I take you off into the details. And the map that I'm going to give you is a coaching model that's used by loads of life coaches and it goes like this. Think, feel, act. So in brief, we think something, we feel a certain way about that thought, and then we act, or we react to the emotion, to how we're feeling about it. So we think something, we feel something about the thought, and then we act in a certain way because um, we're feeling a certain emotion. And that process often happens in real time, so we don't necessarily always, our experience of it can feel like those three things happen all at once. So our experience of that can be a bit like, you made me angry and it's your fault that I had this outburst or whatever. But actually there is a sequential process, which is why 
life coaches are so interested in this because if we're able to interrupt that sequential process or change that sequential process, then we end up with a different outcome, right? So if we change the way we think about something, we'll have a different emotion experience with that and we'll have a different action. And then of course, we're gonna have a different result because we're doing something differently. So that's why life coaches are so interested in this model. But what we're gonna focus on is the thinking and the feeling in particular. But we'll also see the action that that happens or the reaction or the impact that that has on the body. And marketers know, they know this stuff, right? They know that it's how we feel that makes us act, not how we think. So they might access us through our thought, but the thought is there. They're trying to create a thought in your mind which will create an emotion and that emotion will change your behavior. And that's what they're looking for. So marketers know all about this. Anyway, so your simple map is think, feel, act, or react. So that's the map of the territory. And now I'm gonna dive in, which is where we get to the sciencey bit. And I get a bit overexcited, so <laughs> bear with me. Um, I'm gonna walk you through that think, feel, act process and tell you what's happening um, chemically in the body as we go through that. What's, yeah, so like I'm gonna explain the biochemistry of what's going on underneath that process or that model. So we think something, perhaps that's a random thought popping into our head, perhaps we are worrying about something that hasn't yet happened or perhaps we are thinking about an event that's already happened in the past um, or perhaps it's in response to a real-time external stimulus. So maybe it's getting cut up, cut up in traffic or um, finding a teaspoon and a coffee stain on the painted windowsill next to my husband's desk again. Or maybe it's text from a long-lost friend um, and it arrives just at the time when you needed a reminder that people care about you. But what I'm trying to say is a thought happens, okay? And it's, it's likely to be in response to a stimulus. So we've got this thought happening. And what a thought is, that stimulus being processed by our brain. And so we've got um, some neural networks in the brain being activated by this stimuli. Um, and neural networks, so these interconnected neurons or interconnected nerve cells or interconnected brain cells. And our brains are very good at spotting patterns and activating thought processes that we frequently run. So we often run the same program many times over. So we've got this external stimulus and we run a pattern of neural activity in the brain and we experience that as a thought. And so um, what's happening when we experience that thought is that uh, we've got this, inter this interconnected network of neurons. Some of them are passing message from one to the other. And that I think is what most of us are familiar with. So we've got these funny kind of star-shaped nerve cells that have all these kind of fingers at one end and then they've got this long tail and then they pass the message on to the next one. And so that's what we've got with this neural network and, and the thought that we've experienced is that kind of activation of those that set of nerve cells um, and the um, the messages are being transferred nerve cell to nerve cell across this network so that's the thought and as these neurons these brain cells are activated they excrete or release neurotransmitters and neuropeptides at that synapse between 
the two nerve cells. But so we've got these neurotransmitters and neuropeptides being released at that point. And some of them are destined for the neighboring cell, but peptides, these neuropeptides, are not just destined for the neighboring cell. And so neuropeptides are just a, a version of peptides. Um, they're just peptides that are produced by a nerve cell, but peptides can be produced by other parts of the body, and that's more about what we're talking about next week. Anyway, so these peptides, or neuropeptides in this particular case, are not just destined for the neighbor. They are destined for the entire body. So they enter the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that our brain is surrounded by, um, and it also surrounds the whole of our spinal column. So that's the cerebrospinal fluid. These peptides enter that, and they also enter the bloodstream. And by, by doing that, they are now infiltrating the entire body. So every cell in our body is covered with thousands of receptors. And some cells will have more of one type of receptor because they're more interested in a particular type of peptide than others. Um, so they'll be more sensitive to some, uh, some of these chemicals in our bloodstream than others. But these receptors are very specific. They are seeking their specific partner. And this relationship between a receptor and what's called its ligand, in this case we're talking about a peptide, what it means is just its partner, okay? Um, so the receptor and the um, ligand, or in this case the peptide, is very specific. And this has traditionally been illustrated as a lock and key model. And that's mm, probably not a great model, but the point of that is specificity is a big deal. So the key must fit the lock in order for these two to be right for one another. Now, they don't really fit together quite like a lock and a key. There's no kind of turning of the key, um, which is why it's perhaps not the best um, model. But like I said, it's about specificity. Now, these molecules, um, these peptides, and their receptors do this sort of dance. They vibrate at a specific frequently, frequency, and they are attracted to one another. So they're sending out their frequency throughout the body and they are being drawn to one another, they're attracted to one another. The receptor is sitting on the outer surface of the cell membrane. And like I said before, we've got millions of cells in our body and thousands of receptors on every cell. So these receptors are sitting on the outside of the cell membrane and they're looking for their partner. They're looking for their partner in this extracellular fluid. And what I mean by extracellular fluid is the fluid in which our, the cells of our body are sitting in. Um, so how we then, how things get into that is via the bloodstream, via the cerebrospinal fluid. So I'm going to pause now because this is an exciting bit. Guess what is happening here. So we've got this vibrating receptor and we've got a vibrating peptide and they are communicating to one another. They are recognizing one another. They're doing this like dance together. And guess what we experience this as? This is an emotion. This peptides are the molecules of emotion. And when they do their dance with their receptor, our experience of that is an emotional. It is an emotion. So we have this thought, okay? And that's happening in our brain, in those neural networks of those pathways. Frequently, we're treading the same pathways that we always tread, having the same thoughts, right? So we have this thought and we release these peptides and then the peptides travel through the body and they meet their receptors where they do this dance and we experience the dance as an emotion. So what happens next? 
So the, the peptide and the receptor are dancing together and we're feeling this emotion. It might be sadness, we might be feeling joy, we might feel elation, or maybe in the case of this coffee stain, I feel frustrated. Um, and once they connect, so they've done this dance and we've felt this emotion, they then get drawn into the cell and that's where the magic happens. So together this peptide and its receptor because they are now connected, they get the green light to enter into the cell. Under normal circumstances, when the receptor is not with its partner, it stays on the cell surface. Once it's got its partner, the two of them can go hand in hand and enter into the cell. When they enter into the cell, gene expression is altered. Now, gene expression is what parts of our DNA are being acted on. So you can think of your DNA as this enormous library and the body doesn't need to be reading all of the chapters and all of the verses and all of the books at all times in all parts of the body, right? So some cells will never need some of that information. Like our eyes are blue or green or whatever. Like that's just irrelevant to our kidneys. We're not interested in that, right? So some of this DNA is folded away. Our cells have the same DNA in them, but some of that's folded away and isn't required for use. So expression of genes is when the genes are switched on and the cells are acting upon the instructions encoded in those genes. And frankly, gene expression is far more interesting than studying the genome itself. The genome is just a library of what we could possibly read. But really, um, you know, it, let's look at two people, right? They've both got access to the same library. What's going to influence their lives? Not what's in the library, but what books they're reading, right? That's going to influence them far more than, um, than what's actually in the library. So yeah, um, gene expression is far more interesting than the genes themselves. But anyway, so some genes are switched on and others are switched off. Um, and different proteins are produced, and more of the same receptor is produced. So our, bi our body's biology has been altered. And where did all of this start? It started with that coffee stain. So let's have a recap. So the coffee stain has been picked up by my visual system. This triggers, with, it's passing that information into my brain. It's triggering activity in my brain across my neural networks, probably one that I've experienced before. The activity, in this neural network is experienced by me as a thought. I have a thought about this coffee spoon and the stain that is on the windowsill. I'll leave you to figure out what my thought might be. Um, and so that's happening in our brain. And then the neurons, the brain cells are releasing these peptides. The peptides flow throughout the body. They go vibrate with their receptors. We experience an emotion and then they connect to one another, they get taken into the cell, they change what's happening at um, a genetic level, they change what's happening in terms of our gene expression, and when we do that, our biology and our biochemistry is changed. And so what we've seen is that we think, we then feel, and there is an impact or an action or a reaction within the body at a genetic level. Um, and when our cells are activating or deactivating different genes, this means our cells are creating different proteins and they will be um, activating different biochemical processes. And so, of course, when there's this change at a cellular level, this will impact what's happening on a larger scale as well. So if the cells that have been affected are in our kidney, it will change how our kidney is functioning. 
if we've got loads of receptors in our liver cells for this particular peptide, it will change how our liver is functioning and so on and so on because every cell in our body has thousands of receptors on it, albeit some cells will have more of a certain type of receptor than others. And these peptides and their receptors are very specific, but a particular peptide will affect multiple different types of cells, multiple different systems in our body, because that same receptor can appear on any cell and it will have a slightly different uh, impact depending on what the purpose and the role of that cell is, depending on where it is, what organ is it, what, what gland is it. And so if you're thinking stressed out negative thoughts and you're experiencing negative self-talk, I'm not good enough unless it's perfect and so on, our bodies are experiencing that too. So we genuinely can think ourselves sick. And let's step back a little because um, something that I mentioned but kind of brushed over was that more of the same receptor are produced. So that cell where it's had this receptor that's met its peptide and those that have been taken into the cell, one of the things that the cell will do is produce more of that receptor. So the cell has learned we need to be sensitive to this peptide. It's in our environment. We need to be ready for more. We need to be ready to act. So we need to produce more of the same receptor and get more of them out onto the cell surface so that next time that peptide is floating around, we pick it up, we become more sensitive to it. So now we're becoming more sensitive to the coffee stain and the experience of frustration. And so next time, we're likely to experience more frustration. <laughs> and so let's apply that to joy. The more experience of joy that we have, the more sensitive we become to the experience of joy, and therefore the more joy we feel even when there's a smaller stimulus. Okay? So, what can you do with all this knowledge? Um, well, perhaps you might like to listen to this episode all over again because I've just bombarded you with a shed load of information. Um, but the good news is that we can change the way that we think. We can change the thoughts that we have. And that was where this started, right? So, okay, we can't change the coffee stain, but we can change how we think about the coffee stain. And the change in the thought about the coffee stain will change how our body experiences and the biochemical processes that are kicked off as a consequence of how we responded to the coffee stain on the windowsill. And we can intentionally teach our body by intentionally doing good things, like intentionally being happy. One of the things, so I was listening to um, a Mel Robbins podcast recently, and she was saying that happier, I think it was happy people, happier people um, intentionally do things that make them happy. <laughs> so they go out in search of happy um, experiences. And so we can do that. We can intentionally create experiences that bring us the emotions that we want to become more sensitive to and we will teach the body and all of the cells in our body to become more sensitive to that experience. And when I was doing my research um, for this episode, I came across this quote by a lady called Debbie Hampton and she says, when people consciously practice gratitude, they get a surge of rewarding neurotransmitters like dopamine and experience a general alerting and brightening of the mind, probably correlated with more of the neurochemical norepinephrine. And if so, if you're up for changing your body, changing your body's biochemistry and becoming more sensitive to good thoughts and happy thoughts, I'm going to refer you back to 
episode five that I did with Anna Stando all about gratitude. And so now you can go practice gratitude with this new understanding that you're actually training your body to be more thankful for the world around you, right? And next time I'm going to have even more good news for you because if we go back to my two takeaways, the mind influences the body, that's what we've covered today, and the body influences the mind, which is what we're going to cover next time. So next time we're going to dive into how the body can influence the mind in more detail, but to give you a taste, I'll be talking about how we can use the body to work backwards through that think, feel, act model. So if we turn that model on its head, we can act in order to create a feeling, which then changes the way we think. So we can act by doing things in our body, um, and then we can create this sensation, this feeling, this emotion, and depending on our emotional state, we are going to have different thought patterns being activated. So if we go back to the coffee stain, um, if I'm in a generally good mood, and life is good, and um, you know I'm feeling positive and buoyed, and like anything, you know, like uh, I'm taking everything in my stride, right? When I see the coffee stain, I'm probably going to just pick up the spoon and wipe up the mess and move on, right? But if I'm having one of those days where it's been, let's just say, a really big challenge to get Annie to school by nine o'clock, and it's not even ten a.m. and it just feels overwhelming, and I've got too much to do, and I'm just feeling like everything is a challenge then how am I going to respond to that coffee stain? I'm probably not going to be thinking those same, like, oh, it doesn't matter kind of thoughts. I'm going to be like, oh, my God, and now I even have to clean up after the coffee. <laughs> and by the way, I don't drink coffee. Um, so, yeah, we can act in a way that creates a feeling in our bodies, um, which then supports us in running different thought patterns. So how cool is that, right? So this, my friends, is why I practice yoga and meditation every day. I am no angel. I am not saying that I do not um, <laughs> experience quote-unquote negative emotions um, or get frustrated about coffee spoons and other things. Um, but what I'm saying is that what I do is I set myself up for the best day possible, right? I get myself into a good place where I'm more likely to respond in a way that is favorable to whatever stimuli and however many coffee stains I come across, okay? Um, now we've touched briefly on how we use the body to influence the mind before in a couple of different episodes and I'm going to also point you back to episode two where I discussed ways to process stress and so in that episode I talked about how we can use exercise in particular so we can consciously choose to take that action of, of exercise and exercise will then help us process our stress chemicals and that makes us feel a certain way. So when we return from our run or our swim or our Zumba class or whatever floats your boat, we feel better emotionally and mentally. We're happier and our mind is clearer. So that just gives you a taste of what we're going to be covering next time. So more on that next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Do send me questions because I love this stuff and no doubt you will, like if you send me a question and I don't know the answer, then it will give me a good excuse to go rabbit around, um, to go down, a, sorry, I meant down like a rummage around and down another rabbit hole to go and find some research and find you answers. Um, but it'll also give me inspiration for future episodes. So I'd love to hear from you. Um, that's all for now, folks. See you next time.
podcasts are here to help you manage your stress and burnout and your feedback is really valuable. So please rate this podcast and also drop me a note with any questions, suggestions or feedback that you might have. One of the most common questions I get asked is where should I start? And I believe that the best place for you to start is to learn how to soothe your nervous system. I've created a free download with instructions for five different ways that you can do just this and all of them work pretty much instantly. It's called the Essential Toolkit for Management Consultants. You can download it now at www.hannaholden.co.uk forward slash essential. One last thing, it's the legal language. This podcast is presented solely for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of your doctor, psychotherapist or other qualified professional.